There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Hey, Twisters, what up? Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I have to warn you first, for some reason, my dogs are freaking the fuck out, and nothing I do seems to calm them down, and their barks are echoing even up into the tiny little walk-in closet where I record. So if you hear them, trust me, I tried to shut them up. Thank you, first of all, to everyone who listened to the last episode, Philly's Unknown Children. I know that episode was tough for me as a host and certainly for many of you as listeners, and I really appreciate the kind words so many of you shared about how I presented Jarrell and Aaliyah's stories. I've had a number of listeners and fellow podcasters ask, especially in Aaliyah Davis's case, how her mother retained custody of her children if she was convicted of manslaughter for the death of a child years before Aaliyah was born. That's a fair question, and one I asked myself repeatedly. In the early 2000s, there were three other cases of children dying at the hands of their parents, even though their cases of abuse or neglect were reported to Philly's Department of Human Services. Those cases, as well as the arrest of Jarrell Davis's mother and stepfather, prompted investigations into the efficacy of DHS in Philadelphia. So because there's been so many questions and so much interest, I'm working on a follow-up episode to that story that will cover more about that investigation and improvements in the system over the past 16 years. Speaking of research and upcoming episodes, this week's episode is a little late because I've been working on Grace Packer's story. Thank you all so much for sharing Grace's GoFundMe page, for sharing her story, or donating to the fund if you were able. Thank you for following her story on the Memory of Grace Packer Facebook page. And thanks most of all to the Fab Five. That's what I call the five moms who organized the community forum and memorial for Abington Township residents on January 16th. I was at the community forum and it was truly amazing. There were probably close to 150 people in attendance and speakers from the community and the township. The organizers talked about the charity they formed in Grace's honor, which is called On Gracie's Wings. And it's a nonprofit that will help children and families in foster care and at-risk children and families who are victims of domestic abuse. I'll be sharing so much more about that event and Grace's story in upcoming weeks. So without further ado, let's kick this episode off with some what-ups. What up to some listeners who took the time to leave reviews on iTunes? Rebexter, who said their only connection to Philly before listening to Twisted Philly was the opening theme from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yep, big, famous, talented Will Smith got his start right here in West Philly. What up to EPEC929, who is listening a little ways down the turnpike from Philly. You are such a sweetheart. Thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate you listening. And what up to Indigo Chouette, who actually made me cry. Their review was so complimentary. I want everyone to know I read every review, every tweet, every email, every Facebook post. They all matter to me. Each and every one of you who takes the time to listen, everyone who reaches out, your engagement means so very much to me. 
And you know what else means so very much to me, especially today in this episode? Head. Yeah, I know that sounds horrible. But after the last episode being so heavy and depressing, I have got to lighten the mood a little bit. So my first thought was to title this episode, Philly Gives Good Heads. I even asked my fellow women in true crime podcasting if that was too offensive. And then I remembered this is Twisted Philly and I realized, nope, it's not too offensive. But then as soon as I put that episode title idea out into the universe, the song Baby Got Back got stuck in my head. Except instead of back, I kept singing Baby Got Head. So for a couple of days, that was the title of the episode. And then a few weeks ago, my daughter sent me a text that said, you have to tell this story on Twisted Philly. And there was a link. So I clicked the link, expecting it to be something weird and twisted. And I was not disappointed. So now I had three weird related stories that I wanted to share in this episode. So then, of course, I thought of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, except my daughter has blue hair and we're talking about heads, not bears. So that's how I landed on the episode title, Indigo Locks and the Three Heads. And I don't know if you give a shit about how I came up with this episode title, but I thought it was a pretty good story. So too bad you got stuck listening to it. You may not be aware of this, but we have a number of creepy, disturbing stories about severed heads here in Pennsylvania. Like, that's something that we want to be known for, not... So I'm going to start with the oldest and work my way up to the present. Our first tale is from a town north and west of Philadelphia in the heart of Pennsylvania coal country. It's a town called Shemokin. Shemokin is not a big town. There's about, I don't know, maybe 7,000 people living there. And the big development in Shemokin was the discovery of anthracite coal in the 1700s. So what the hell is anthracite coal? It's the hardest type of coal there is, and it has the highest amount of carbon. There's very little anthracite mined in the USA today, but if you know anything about Pennsylvania, you know most of the state was built on the backs of coal miners for generations. There's an anthracite festival in Shemokin. Yeah, an entire festival dedicated to coal. And shame on me because it sounds like I'm making fun of it. And it's actually an event that brings a lot of business into the town. And it focuses on the arts and the rich history in that part of Pennsylvania. We even have an anthracite heritage museum a little north of Shemokin in a town called Scranton, which, according to their website, serves the educational needs of the public regarding the story of hard coal mining its related industries, and the immigrant culture in northeastern Pennsylvania. And that is where this tale of three heads will begin, in the museum back in the 70s. So if you lived in northeast Pennsylvania in the mid-70s and visited the Anthracite Heritage Museum, one of the displays offered much more than hard coal. It was a terrarium, like something a little boy might keep a frog or a turtle in on his bedroom nightstand. But this terrarium did not contain amphibian critters, no twisters. It contained a severed head. The glass display was covered by a velvet cloth, so it was ever so fancy. And inside was a head that was discovered in 1904 by a group of hunters in an area of Shemokin called Hickory Ridge. 
Okay, so that's not actually true. Um, the hunters found a naked, headless body of a man. Yeah, out in the middle of nowhere, someone dumped a headless corpse back in 1904. Not only had the body been decapitated, the head was missing at this point, but it had bullet holes in it, and it was described as quite a muscular physique. So where was the head? Nobody knew. Local police and newspapers circulated stories about the mysterious headless victim, hoping that someone would come forward looking for a missing family member or loved one. And no one did. And then, just a little over a week later, the head turns up, just about a few hundred yards in the same patch of woods from where the body was found. So I'm thinking the searchers back in 1904 didn't do too thorough a job searching for the head when they found the body because the head really wasn't that far away. But in all fairness, the head wasn't exactly in plain sight. It was wrapped in a bundle of clothing and buried under rocks. And like the body, the head also had a bullet wound. This was right behind the right ear. But beyond that, the head was in pretty good shape. Um, okay, except for the fact that it was decapitated. The head also had a rather substantial thick handlebar mustache and I'm sorry, I should not be laughing about a severed head, but using the word handlebar in the same sentence as a severed head, like, just brings up these visions of somebody using the handlebar mustache to carry around the severed head. I'm sorry, that's so rude. Because of the head's features and dark hair and dark mustache, the man was thought to probably be Italian and very likely an Italian immigrant. This led the police to believe that the man was a victim of a group called the Black Hand Society. Okay, so what's the Black Hand Society? It was a secret military society that was formed in Serbia in 1911, which is actually seven years after the Shemokin head was found. The society also took credit for assassinating the Serbian royal family in 1903, so it's possible that they were really causing trouble long before public recognition in 1911. The Black Hand Society also claimed responsibility for the murder of Archduke Ferdinand back in 1914, so these guys could have been the catalyst for World War I. But here's the thing. There were reports of Black Hand Societies all over the United States in the early 1900s, but why the hell would somebody come to Shemokin to dump a body? I mean, that northeast section of Pennsylvania isn't too far from North Jersey and New York, where I think Black Hand Society chapters would be more plausible, but I just can't imagine this group hanging out in rural Pennsylvania. Finding the head was a big step in the right direction because certainly it's easier to identify a victim if you have the head. The head was sent to a funeral home in a nearby town named Mount Carmel and it was put on display in the front window of the funeral home so residents could gawk and stare and hopefully somebody would say, yep, that's Sal or hey, that's Vinny, but nobody did. So after the head hung out in the Mount Carmel funeral home for a while, it was moved to Shemokin. It was embalmed, and it was set up for display again in another funeral home for almost two months. After finding the head, the body had been buried, but police kept hoping that as the head made a tour of local funeral homes in the area, someone would be able to identify this man. Eventually, interest in the head waned, and I mean, I get it. How many times can you go stare at the same severed head in a jar before it loses its attraction? So eventually, Pharaoh's funeral home in Shemokin relocated the head to their basement. 
So about 25 years after the body and the accompanying severed head were discovered, police learned of a man from Brooklyn who on his deathbed confessed to a series of murders that were committed in the name of the Black Hand Society. One of those murders took place near Hickory Ridge. That's where the headless body and severed head were found in 1904. After talking with the police in Brooklyn, the Pennsylvania State Police agreed that that man had to be the victim of this man from Brooklyn. But since the murderer was so old and made a deathbed confession, there wasn't really much to be done to get justice. And the name of the victim was still never shared, so nobody could identify next of kin. And so the story about the Black Hand murderer increased the town's interest in the severed head. As the legends go, residents would go to the funeral home. They would ask if they could come inside and be escorted down into the basement so they could look at the head. As years went on, the head became a local legend, and it was like a dare among kids. It was almost a coming-of-age ritual to visit Pharaoh's funeral home and ask to see the head. Until 1976, when the funeral home got sick and tired of the head because dealing with people asking to see the severed head in a jar in their basement became sort of a pain in the ass when you're trying to run a business. Pharaoh's funeral home offered the head to the Anthracite Heritage Museum. They took it, and they set it out on display. Imagine this, you're visiting a museum about coal, about the coal mining history in Pennsylvania, and early railroad pioneers in the state, all the good that coal mining has done, not only for Pennsylvania, but for our country. And as you're walking past these lumps of coal, there's suddenly a severed head floating in a glass jar. Like, that is not the sort of attraction you would expect to see in a museum dedicated to coal. And that's what a local judge thought, too. Not long after the museum opened, Judge Peter Crayhall visited the museum, and to his great dismay, there was the severed head with the handlebar mustache, and this good old judge was just offended by this. He thought the display was in very poor taste, and it was an act of disrespect to the dead, so he wrote a court order to have the head buried. Now, the president of the museum wasn't too happy with this judge because the severed head was drawing a pretty big crowd. He thought of this severed head like a display at other museums, like history museums, for example, where you'll see mummies or preserved specimens. Okay, this isn't the Mutter Museum where severed heads are just one of the many delights floating in jars of formaldehyde. We're talking a coal museum in very rural upstate Pennsylvania. The county coroner shows up to take away the head, and it's gone. A severed head cannot just get up and walk away on its own, and it didn't. According to the local news reports from 1976 in Stramokin, the museum president, a man named David Donmoyer, took the head and hid it. Would you like to guess where he hid this head? Don Moyer hid the head in a box of pads. Yes, feminine hygiene products in the basement of his pharmacy. Like, that is fucking disgusting. I can't even imagine you're bringing a severed head into a pharmacy where people are coming to get medication when they're sick. There's got to be something, like, wrong with the hygiene of that situation. I'm so sorry. I can't even keep a straight face as I'm telling you this story. By February 1977, everyone had finally had enough of this bullshit. President Don Moyer from the museum lost his battle to keep the head, and it was finally laid to rest. Which, honestly, as funny as it may sound, a severed head in a jar in an anthracite museum after spending decades in a basement of a funeral home is creepy as fuck, and this man deserved to be laid to rest. 
It's not like this was a medical museum and the specimen was being used for education. It was being used as a novelty. So I totally get why the judge was offended. And this particular head now weaves its way out of our story to make room for yet another one. As if human severed heads aren't bad enough, we get our share of animal severed heads too out here in Twisted Philly. In March last year, a severed cow's head was tossed outside a Hindu cow sanctuary in Monroe County, which is north of Allentown. Sankar Sastri, who started the sanctuary about 20 years ago, said that he hoped it was a prank and thought perhaps the perpetrator didn't know what he or she was doing. Sankar, that is a lovely thought, and I wish I could agree with you, but I think someone who would do something like that, leave a severed cow head outside a Hindu cow sanctuary, knows exactly what the fuck they're doing. And they did it on purpose to intimidate people who practice a faith they don't understand and they don't even care to take the time to understand. Just a little over a month ago in December, we had a severed pig's head thrown from a red truck at the front door of a mosque in North Philly. There are still no suspects, and even though we have video, you can't see the license plate of the truck. Both the Philly police and the FBI are working on the investigation, but so far, they can't call it a hate crime. Right. Because... You know, some people just chuck pig's heads out a car window for shits and giggles. A few weeks before the pig's head was thrown at the mosque overnight, they received harassing messages from somebody saying, God is a pig and God is pork. That's not how I feel. I'm quoting the messages the mosque received. And in an article in a local Philly online news source I read, it said, Police have yet to determine if the voice message and the pig's head are related. Are you fucking kidding me? You cannot make that shit up. Of course they're related. Of course it's a hate crime. Of course it's more people trying to frighten and intimidate someone who is different than themselves. Remember in the last episode when I said our city can be mean? Yeah, this is a perfect example of that. Before we resume our tales of severed, decapitated, misplaced heads and their contents, we're going to take a Pottern family break. What's a Pottern Family break, some of you might ask? Well, if you're on Twitter, Pottern Family is the hashtag that promotes podcasts, episodes, and just generally helps spread the word about different shows. During this particular Pottern Family break, you're going to hear from two of my favorite entertainment podcasts. I've talked about them before, the Epic Film Guys featuring Nick and Justin, and the Countdown Pod featuring cool-as-shit Aussies Wayne and Paul. Your guide to cinema etiquette for the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews Podcast. Tip 21. If your portable telephone rings whilst you're enjoying a film, it is a dick move to answer your telephone and speak at a normal volume during the screening. Instead, exit the cinema and return the call in private. It should have been off anyway, fuckhead! For more useful cinema etiquette, join Paul and Wayne on the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast at Podomatic on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
What is the Pottern family? Hey guys, it's Rad Dad Chad, Jay Mills, and Lil Man from the Full of Fiber podcast. Hey y'all, it's Juliet Miranda from the Unwritable Rant podcast. Hey, this is Bro from the World of Row podcast. This is Cyanide from the Little Geek Lost podcast. Hey, this is Rick from Ice and the Face. This is Nick from the Epic Film Guys podcast. This is Greg from the Sports Dance podcast. This is Nock from the Geek Over podcast. This is Gareth from the Open All Powers podcast. This is Paul from the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast. This is Adam from Everyone Has a Podcast. Hey, we're Josh and David. From the Scotch and Flicks podcast. This is Matthew McDonough from the Passersby podcast. This is Eric Mocker from the Mockers podcast. We are you. Podcasters coming together in a community to help one another grow. So follow us on Twitter at Pottern Family and use the hashtag Pottern Family in your tweets and retweet other people who do the same. Pottern Family, where great podcasts come home. Our next head story isn't exactly a severed head, but it's close enough. And this is the one my daughter sent me. I asked her to come on the show and tell everyone where she found the story. And she started freaking out and just giving me one word answers. And then she said, I don't want 50,000 people listening to my voice. That's weird. Besides, I don't think Twisted Philly listeners know about Snapchat because they're old. She fucking said because we're old. Please forgive her. Of course, I flipped out and said, no, we're not. I can show you hundreds of followers and they're not old like I am because for a while, okay, I'll be honest, I didn't understand what Snapchat was. So she thinks you guys must not understand Snapchat either. Okay, and so then after I tell her none of you guys are old, she says, well, they could be catfishing you with fake profile pictures. Oh my God, this kid of mine kills me. But Snapchat is where she found the story, which... I really didn't understand because I thought Snapchat was just an app where you take stupid pictures of yourself with goofy filters, and my daughter and I use it for our ugly selfie contest. Yeah, that's sort of our thing. We take ugly pictures to figure out who can take the most horrific selfie, but apparently, and I didn't know this, you can find news stories on Snapchat. So clearly, I am an old fart because I didn't know that. This is another weird head story from outside Philly, again, in a more rural part of the state. And so sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm really grateful I live so close to Philly because some of these stories from outside of Philly are totally fucking messed up. But then again, we've got just as many messed up stories, not only in Philly, but right here where I live in Upper Marion. But we're going back further outside of Philly this time. And this is to a city called Carlisle, PA which is pretty far west of Twisted Philly, but it's not as far as Pittsburgh. So maybe two to two and a half hours away. This is the story of a young man named Joshua Long. I got to warn you guys, I am not going to be able to get through this without laughing. I have tried and I can't. Joshua likes to get high. And while I know there are different types of bud, I've never heard of this particular combination of which Joshua and his friends were a fan pot and formaldehyde. Young Joshua, who was living with his aunt last July, stole a human brain and soaked the weed in the embalming fluid coating the brain. So apparently the methanol in the embalming fluid could give Joshua and his friends an exceptionally hallucinatory high. And dumbass, it also could have killed you. 
So when the brain was found, oh, oh my God. Okay, I forgot. Joshua Long called the brain Freddy, like it was his friend. But when the brain was found, it was stored in a Walmart bag under the trailer he shared with his aunt. Of course he kept it in a Walmart bag. I can't even stop laughing. I'm so sorry. I've tried. I've like recorded and edited this part of the story so many times. Fuck it. You're just going to hear me cracking up. So when the brain was found, Joshua was already in jail for multiple burglaries in Pennsylvania. Where did he get the brain? Nobody knows. The cops have not been able to ID the brain. And Joshua won't tell them how he got his hands on the brain. Police said they were hoping if anyone feels like they're missing a human brain to let them know. (laughs) Pardon me, officer. I seem to have misplaced a brain. I I just can't. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. If you look at this guy's mugshot, most of his head is his brain. It looks like his face is really small and the front and top of his head are really big like Megamind, except he's not blue. This guy is still behind bars and so far police still have not identified the brain and they haven't been able to get Joshua to give up how he got his hands on it. So thank you, child of my loins, for that ridiculous twisted story about a stolen human brain in Pennsylvania. And now this brings us to our last strange head story. This is the tale of an embalmed severed head found just two years ago north of Pittsburgh in a town called Economy, Pennsylvania. But there's no one there, no one there. There's no one here with me. No one is here. So back in December 2014, a young boy was walking along a wooded road. He was on his way home from the bus stop and he found a severed head. Here we are, 110 years later, now on the western side of the state, but it's a similar story. Severed head found in the woods. But here's the difference about this severed head versus the one found in 1904. This head was female, there was no body, and the head was embalmed. Who the hell would decapitate someone after they're embalmed? This story freaked me out for a couple of reasons. My first thought was Phantasm, especially the tall man. Phantasm 2 is, to me, one of the scariest horror movies ever. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. It's a dream. No, it's not. And the tall man, who's the antagonist in the movie, if you've never seen it, is an undertaker undertakers embalm people and i'm so scared of that character and i'm so scared of those movies i could absolutely believe the tall man is roaming western pennsylvania decapitating embalmed deceased persons the second reason this story freaked me the fuck out is the eyes when people are embalmed their eyes are replaced with flesh-colored balls or orbs and some cotton packing i never knew that before i researched this story but not this chick In her eye sockets were red rubber balls, like the kind we all got when we were little and we put a quarter in the toy machines in grocery stores. And your own kids today might even still find them in those little machines. What the fuck is that about? Red rubber balls. So when someone opens her eyelids, she looks like a demon. 
Again, this makes me think of Phantasm, and in Phantasm, there's this silver ball that would fly around and try to kill people. So, okay, it's not red, but I could still see the tall man from Phantasm doing some creepy shit like this. The police couldn't release photos of this woman's head. Like, that would have just been sort of disgusting. But they needed to get some representation of this woman out to the public so they could try to identify her. And no body was ever found. It was just the head. So they turned to a forensic artist at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, a woman named Michelle Vitali. Professor Vitali spent about 40 hours shaping and molding and constructing with over 10 pounds of clay, measuring the Jane Doe head to get her features right, just everything, even down to the wrinkles around her eyes. A sculptural reconstruction was finished about a month after the head had been found. Police hoped that once they released pictures of the sculpture, someone would recognize this woman. And it's been over two years and still nobody has identified this missing woman's head. As I researched this story, I didn't find many details other than news reports and articles that were released soon after the head was found. And I do remember seeing this story even in local Philly news about two years ago when it was first discovered. But then I checked the Daily Beast. There I found what I personally believe is the best reporting about this case, and the article is by a Chicago journalist named Justin Glaw. Justin has been reporting for the Daily Beast for about two and a half years, and his reporting of this story was so comprehensive and thoughtful and detailed that I wondered if I might be able to talk to him. So I jumped on LinkedIn, I found Justin, I sent him a note telling him who I was, telling him about Twisted Philly, and I asked him if he might be willing to speak with me and even share our conversation on the show. Not only did Justin reply back that day, but he was totally down for talking with me and made time for me just a few days later. Here's a great big twisted what up to Justin, not only for being a talented reporter, but for just being a cool ass dude. Hey, can you hear me? Hi, yes, I can. Justin. Yeah, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm good. I figured even though Justin was willing to talk to me, like, it had to be a little bit strange. Some random chick from Philly finds him online and wants to talk to him about a story he wrote a year ago about a severed head. But it would seem that I am not the only random chick who calls Justin for interviews. I mean, it never, like, ceases to amaze me how random people find me and and how many, like, I have this woman who, like, runs a radio show in Canada, and, like, I have no idea who they are, how they found me, but, like, anytime something happens in Chicago with police, they call me and I do an interview. It's just bizarre. My first question for Justin was, how on earth does a journalist from Chicago find himself in rural northwest Pennsylvania chasing down a story about an embalmed, severed head? A local publication had written about it, just a local newspaper or whatever. And, I mean, they had done a good job covering it from, you know, when the head was discovered. And I can't remember when it was, but I know it was in 2014. And at some point, they released, like, this 3D model of what they believed the woman, or what they they knew what the woman's head looked like. They just, they obviously couldn't put a picture of it out there. And so my editor had somehow seen that story and sent it to me. And, you know, I mean, we we do this all day, every day with my editors where, like, hey, here's something that you might be interested in. And a lot of times I'm like, oh, cool, but I just don't have time for it. 
But this was one where um, I was like, all right, this is crazy. So I had to, it just fit my curiosity, and I had to keep going down the hole with it. That started a reporting process that then eventually led to be actually going out there and kind of hitting the ground there. I was only there for a day, but uh, that's what led to me being out there. I say, I say I was there for a day, but, I mean, this story probably took me six or eight months to write. So yeah. there was a lot that went into it. And then there are those creepy red balls. And from what I read online, there wasn't much to go on from that as a clue. So I had to ask Justin about what he thought about those red rubber balls in the victim's eye sockets. If I remember right, I mean, that was something that they had, like, tried to figure out where they came from. And they ended up finding out that they were, like, balls that were, like, mass-produced by any number, like, hundreds, it could have been hundreds of different factories in China. And so there's like no possible way to track these things and figure out where they came from. I searched online relentlessly for other stories about embalmed severed heads, maybe in other states, and I came up empty, which I guess is a really good thing. Like, you don't want this kind of thing happening everywhere. Although I was also a little disappointed because I wanted there to be a way to identify this woman. And for the last two years since her head was found, police in Economy, which is in Beaver County, have come up empty. Once the head was found, there was really no way for police to tell how long it had been left outside along that wooded road. From what Justin told me, because the head was embalmed, normal decomposition hadn't occurred. And Justin actually has a friend in mortuary science, so he asked her how long it takes for the decomposition process to begin after someone's buried. And her response was, it just kind of depends. I don't think that was something that they were able to get down to any reasonable amount of time because the head was involved, too, which was another weird part of the story. And because of that, like, the normal decomposition process had not yet taken place. I remember that I asked uh, a a friend of mine who's a mortuary scientist, like, you know, how long does it take before the embalming process starts to deteriorate? And, you know, like, how long are you in the ground after you've been involved before you the normal decomposition process takes place. And she basically told me that it just depends on the chemicals that they used and how good of a job they did. And if, okay. if you know, if you do a bad job at it, your body could start to deteriorate in five days. If you do a good job, who knows? It could take five months or five years. So based on that and, and based on what the cops said, I don't think they had any way of knowing how long it had been out there. Justin and the Daily Beast scoured missing persons databases to see if there were any missing Pennsylvania women matching this woman's age or description, and they found someone they thought could be a possible match. The Daily Beast did a pretty thorough search of PA female missing persons cases, and you had mentioned yeah. one woman in particular named Tammy Porin. Yeah. What was it about Tammy that had at least you and the Daily Beast thinking that maybe there was a connection there? I went through the National Missing Persons database for women who were from the areas where they said that this woman might have been from. So it was like Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New York, and some other places. And they also had like an estimate of how old she was. So I just basically went through all of those missing person databases and pulled anyone who was in that age range and okay. then put them into like a, put them into like a spreadsheet and then started going through and looking at their pictures. From that, I, like, whittled it down to a smaller list of people who, who I thought really could look like this woman. And in some cases, it was difficult because, like, the picture 
was from when the woman went missing in 1983, and she was 24 at the time, and maybe yeah. 40, 40 now. From that database, you know, I think I I pulled like five or six people who I thought, okay, there's some really close distinguishing physical characteristics about these women. So I tried to find family of those people to see, you know, if they agreed with my very layman's assessment that there was some similarities. And of, of that smaller group of people, Tammy Torrance's brother was the only one who got back to me and said, yeah, I see what you're saying. It does look like her, but, you know, I think she is dead. It was just a massive whittling down project, really. So we've got a severed head. It's embalmed. It was found with red rubber balls in the eye sockets. Isotope testing was done, and it was determined that over a period of seven months before her death, the woman consumed water from areas around western Pennsylvania, northwest Maryland, Ohio, and southwestern New York. My question for Justin was, did anybody check missing persons databases from other than Pennsylvania? Well, and the other thing, too, if you remember from the story, is that when they did whatever that testing is, it's based off of the water that's in your body, and that's how they're able to tell the geographic areas that she might have. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah, and so, but it also said that she could have been from, like, Washington State, or, like, somewhere out in the Northwest. I had asked the cops in economy, did you guys kind of go through missing person databases for all these places where she could have been? And he said that they had gone through them for the places out in the Northeast, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, all those places. And then I said, well, what about Washington State? He was like, no, we didn't really do that. And I was like, well, why not? And he said, well, just based on the fact that she was found here, we didn't think it was plausible that she would have been from out there. And I'm just like, shouldn't you be running everything down? You know? Yeah. And, that, and that's where I think, and that's not to knock law enforcement. I mean, they're working with a limited set of resources themselves, but sure. that's where I think that, like, somebody who came in there and, like, really this was all that they did until they got some answers. I think that somebody could probably figure it out. Besides Justin's stories, there were a few local articles, and... One of the theories they had was that police suspected this woman was connected to a black market body part racket. And I find that really hard to believe. Justin and I talked about the possibilities of how this woman came to meet this bizarre demise. Gosh, it's just, this is such a weird one because the embalming really just throws everything off. Why was she embalmed? And I mean, there's any number of theories as to like why that could be. But I mean, you're, you're basically down to two, which is that Either this is a body snatcher case where somebody took her from the embalming table at a funeral home or pulled her out of the ground and then decided to cut her head off and leave it in the woods somewhere. Or this is a in-person case where, you know, maybe somebody picked this woman up and decided to, you know, have a, a homemade embalming session or something. Yeah, which is even more bizarre than like a body snatcher case. So it's yeah. really like two, those are the two main possibilities, I think, of what could have happened. You know, what continues to stand out to me is that there have been no updates to this story. Like I told Justin, the most recent and really most comprehensive reporting about this woman was his story from the Daily Beast in 2016. This is a really difficult one to figure out. And like, you, it, honestly, I think a good private investigator, um, you know, teamed up with, with somebody who's got a law enforcement background in that area you know, if they really put their minds to it and spent six months there, like, trying to track... All I did was raise a bunch of possibilities in my yeah. story. 
And if somebody went back and, you know, teamed up like that, I think they could get close to at least having some possible uh, motives or at least maybe some more people that it could be because that's the other thing about this case. is like, we're not looking for a killer. We're not looking for a motive. We're looking, we don't even know who this woman is. And so until you can answer that question, you're never going to be able to figure out how it is that she wound up where she was. Uh, yeah. And I think it could be done, but it's just going to take, you know, a massive amount of resources to, to be able to do that. I've contacted local law enforcement. I haven't heard back from them yet, but if at some point in the future I do get any updates about this severed head, I will certainly share them with all of the Twisted Philly listeners. Well, this brings our story of Indigo Locks and the Three Heads to a close. It's definitely not your average bedtime story or a fairy tale, but nothing in Twisted Philly ever is. This was a pretty fucked up episode, I gotta say. I listen to a lot of other podcasts, and I can't say I've ever heard an episode with multiple severed head stories, human and bovine, plus a stolen brain. Before I go, I'd like to share some news with you. Next weekend, I will be at the Snowtown Film Festival in Watertown, New York. One of my short thrillers that I rewrote as a short screenplay, you guys know, I think I've mentioned I'm also a writer, but one of my pieces that I rewrote as a short screenplay was selected for a film festival competition. So I'm going up to Watertown to represent and hopefully meet Vigo Mortensen. Holy shit! Vigo Mortensen is kicking off the festival with his independent film, Captain Fantastic. I never knew Watertown, New York is his hometown, so I am so excited. I've never done anything like this before. If you want to read my submission, it's also available as a short e-story on Amazon. You just have to search for the title of the story, which is Cat Sitting, and you'll see it says it's by the host of the Twisted Philly podcast, and, like, it's only two bucks, so skip your cup of coffee tomorrow and go buy Cat Sitting, and I would love to hear what you think of it. I also want to thank Margot D. of the Book vs. Movie podcast. I was fortunate enough to be invited back to record with her again. She is one of the coolest women I've ever met. She is smart and funny and sassy, and she is a phenomenal podcast host. And so, of course, we were talking about Stephen King. This time, it's The Dead Zone. That episode is linked to my Twitter page as well as the Twisted Philly podcast page on Facebook if you want to check it out. Speaking of Twitter, I am all over social media like a bad virus. You can find me on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. I cannot believe that I have over 900 followers. Like, that is insane. I think I will probably pass out if I hit 1,000. So if you're on Twitter and you haven't followed me yet, follow me, damn it. Twisted Philly is on Facebook at the Twisted Philly Podcast. And if you listen on iTunes and have the time and are so inclined, I would be ever so grateful if you would leave a review. I'd like to thank Emmy Sarah for the music in this episode. You can learn more about Emmy's music on her website at emmysera.com. That's E-M-M-Y-C-E-R-R-A.com. And download her music on iTunes. Thanks for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.